Hi everybody, in today's episode we're talking about stigma and I wanted to give a bit of a trigger warning for folks uh, in case uh, some of the uh, discussion topics that we bring up uh, might bring up some, some potential trauma for folks or memories or whatnot. Uh, we'll be referring to uh, uh, topics including uh, assisted suicide, uh, abortion, um, eugenics, and um, other other areas that uh, have been have contributed to sort of stigma in individuals with disabilities. Um, and want to just give everybody a, a chance to uh, stop playing if some of those topics uh, uh, might be problematic. Thanks very much, and hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to the Behavior Speak podcast. Now, here's your host, Ben Ryman. Welcome to another episode of the Behavior Speak podcast. As always, I'm your host, Ben. Uh, today in the, in the studio, we've got um, uh, Dr. Rocco Catrone uh, with us. Um, kind of found Rocco online uh, doing some, uh, some, some interesting research. Um, Kind of in the in the area of stigma, uh, I recently had uh, on the podcast as well uh, Dr. Maya Kovic, who is uh, a researcher out in Hawaii, who's been doing a lot of really cool stuff in stigma. So uh, I thought it was a nice a nice match to get a, a, a couple different perspectives on it. Um, Dr. Kovic, she she kind of was looking at sort of just general um, uh, sort of analysis of stigma. Um, um, in terms of folks with disabilities, but uh, Barocco has actually uh, uh, done a study around a sort of a, a potential uh, sort of preliminary intervention for stigma, which is really cool. So I'm looking forward to kind of digging into that. The paper that uh, we're going to be talking about today was published in uh, the journal Behavior and Social Issues. You can you can uh, subscribe to that through uh, ABAI. Um, and the article is called A Behavioral Approach to Increasing Perceptions of Capability Towards uh, People with Disabilities. And so uh, you can start to see how kind of this concept of capability and stigma are connected, but we'll, we'll be digging into that. So anyway, thanks for being on the show, Rocco. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having us. And and thank you for the connection with that. So actually, after uh, we started talking, um, uh, Maria and uh, uh, Dr. Baires, uh, we all connected afterwards and we'll uh, be actually working on a paper together. So because we oh, podcast, we all connected. That was great. Oh, that <laughs> makes me feel so good. Thanks for sharing that little that little anecdote. I, I love that. I, I actually have had a couple of folks connecting um through the podcast so i think uh, you know it was a side benefit that i didn't expect so i'm definitely looking forward to seeing uh uh what you folks put together and i'll have to bring all three of back to talk about that one uh, hey there we go fantastic so rock before we kind of get uh you know into the research and your work um i always like to get a little bit of a, an origin story of folks kind of find out how they got in the field how they can develop the interest and kind of got to where they were so you wouldn't mind kind of telling us uh, your your ABA story? That'd be amazing. Of course, yeah. So um, I don't know. It's, it's kind of roundabout, I guess. Uh, when I went to school uh, for university at first, um, I really kind of wanted to focus on uh, being a physician assistant. I was, in, you know, either doing that or being a firefighter. And 
Um, you know, throughout that time I went through EMT training, you know, I was ready to go. I was working on an ambulance for a little bit. Um, and over the summer, uh, I was kind of looking for, um, just a different job, just get a different experience. Um, being an EMT didn't, there was just a different patient connection that I was looking for, you know, and, and working with people and kind of seeing, um, what that was like. I, I didn't know if that was a long-term thing. And, uh, one of my professors suggested, Hey, you know, why don't you work at the school, um, for autistic children? And I said, all right, that, I mean, that seems interesting. I didn't know what, you know, I, I never really had a lot of contact before and, um, going there's a giant steps of Illinois. I got to work with a variety of folks. So social workers, behavior analysts, um, they had a psychologist on staff at the time to different teachers and, um, really kind of, uh, promoted the idea of, you know, inclusive education, inclusive practices. And the BCBA was also really, really solid on, um, you know, I, I honestly would say ahead of her time. I mean, this was like 12, 13 years ago, um, really focusing on, you know, is this a goal that's going to be relevant for this person hmm. and how do we support someone and keep them happy and, and doing the things that they want to do without us always defining that. So, um, her name was Lindsay. She was wonderful, 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 wonderful human. Um, and that kind of shaped the way early on on how I saw behavior analysis and yeah, I mean, went from there, worked at a couple in-home companies, um, worked at a hospital for a while uh, doing different things. The hospital experience was really interesting, just, you know, inpatient unit stuff, direct patient, um, care. Um, and you know, I always want to be careful using the term patient. So mm. we've served a lot of folks. Um, and, uh, now I'm a assistant professor and, uh, doing some community work, doing some research and, mm. uh, connecting with students. Really cool. Really cool. Yeah, I, I like. I don't. I, it, it, this isn't a surprise to me. It's because we've we, we've been chatting a bit already. Mm -hmm. um, but um, I love the the EMT firefighter connection that, that you and I have, mm -hmm. and and uh, and that you kind of started with that, and I, I've kind of just added that sort of later in the game. Um, does mm -hmm. does um, did some of has has that training at all, or or that experience um, sort of been, been helpful in your work in any way? Uh, in a couple different ways. Like when I reflect on it a little bit, just, I don't know, after our own conversations, I really started digging into kind of my memories on that. And, um, I think in many ways it did, uh, there's, you know, part of it was just understanding, uh, the human body in mm -hmm. some cases and like understanding, you know, things like, like, what does pain look like for different people? And that mm -hmm. kind of taught me, you know, Pain isn't just everybody sitting there and saying, ow, or mm -hmm. holding something. Pain mm -hmm. can look like shaking. Pain can look like sweating. Pain can mm -hmm. look like staring off. And that's really useful, especially working with individuals that aren't, you know, that don't have the same communicative style that I do mm -hmm. um, to express those things. Mm -hmm. um, so that's been a huge piece. Um, but also just from like a, I don't know how to say it, it's like a logistics standpoint, Um being able to think in the moment is huge. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. I know you and I have had conversations about, uh, but um, being able to think in the moment, but then also being very aware of your own reactions. So yes. like, what are you saying? Where's your body? How are you doing <laughs> things? Um, so, you know, both of those things were hugely, hugely beneficial um, just in the care and like really looking back on that. I mean, that's, that's really something that kind of shaped a lot of the like initial approaches that I do. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I mean that—that's—that's that's kind of the base of it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, and 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 at some point, I, I think that'd be cool. And if there's anyone out there that's listening, you know, that maybe 
maybe in sort of a similar situation to uh, Rocco and I in terms of, you know, maybe practicing as a first responder. I, I've been curious to, to hear if anyone's ever applied some of the, you know, uh, the ABA concepts to their work. I mean, uh, for you, obviously, it, it kind of started with EMT and kind of went into that. For me, you know, I should be. Yeah. <laughs> 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 but I haven't done a lot of it. Um, you know, it certainly it does. It does help me kind of, I, I think, you know, I think, you know, sort of reversing the question, how, does ABA help being a firefighter? You know, I think it definitely does. And, and certainly in terms of, um, you know, uh, de-escalation and um, and, yeah. and certainly remaining calm and, and 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 sort of all those pieces. But also, I think you know, I think uh, I know I've worked with a lot of folks that you know have really struggled. Certainly, in terms of you know dealing with first responders and being really triggered by that. And so, you know, maybe there's different different things we can kind of look at there. But one thing that you said um, just briefly, we're, I think we'll probably dig more into this. But it was you know sort of trying to avoid using you know, terms to kind of describe the folks we're working with. And I think that is mm-hmm. going to, that's going to, you know, and I don't want to dig into this too much yet because we're going to later, but, you know, I think that really feeds into the whole stigma piece. Um, mm-hmm. But at the same time, you know, you know, I, I find sometimes folks are, are, you know, constantly jumbling their words sort of out of, mm-hmm. out of a fear to offend. And I think, you know, and and I, I maybe I'll get letters for this, but I think that <laughs> that you know, in the context of a hospital or in the context of a, you know, as a first responder or an ambulance, I think it's okay to label folks as patients. Um, I think mm-hmm. I think because that's that's what what they are in those contexts. I think it's that context mm-hmm. relation. The key is to sort of not, you know, use that same terminology. I think in other contexts, I don't know what you think about that. Yeah. Um, so kind of thinking on that, the first thing that pops into my head is more of like a medicalized model of disability and thinking of, you know, like treating the symptom, you know, and especially in those cases. And I, you know, I I think especially in, you know, EMT first responder component, it's, uh, there's not a lot of relationship building. Mm -hmm. Um, there is a fair amount, you know, that you have to do, you Mm -hmm. know, that you have to make sure that, you know, the person is safe around you as much as possible. But in those stressful situations, I mean, you're really there to treat the symptoms or, mm-hmm. you know, at least as an EMT paramedic, I mean, you're, you're there to hold off until, you know, hopefully help the person get to the place that has other professionals to prolong that person's life. Yes. Um, yeah. So, so I think like in those cases and in the hospital system, you know, maybe that fits a little bit more because those work more under medicalized models of disability. Yes. Um, and for better, or for worse, you know, I don't know if there's a right answer, associated with that but i wonder if that's kind of where that delineation is yeah absolutely no and i think you're right i think um you know i think i think the problem is isn't so much the term patient but it's more the sort of you know it's it's that la- it's that sort of lack of it's that lack of connection you're talking about you know mm-hmm. um, you know mm-hmm. once you start labeling someone as a number or a, mm-hmm. or, or an item or whatever versus you know bill um, or Mike or whatever, yeah. um, you know, you know it, it sort of changes that relationship. But I think it's understandable. But it was, it was just, I think it's great that you're, you're, you're aware of those terms because I do see those terms used in any kind of other settings. I've seen them used in sort of behavioral intervention, RBT kind of context to therapist-patient mm-hmm. relationship and stuff. And, and I think that can be certainly problematic. But we'll, we'll kind of maybe t- touch on that a little bit. 
we're talking about stigma here, and um, um, uh, my my hope is to release uh, um, um, uh, Mar Maria's uh, episode before yours because it was recorded beforehand. But on the off chance, uh, you know, uh, with with my ADHD, <laughs> I forget the order and release yours first. Maybe we can just do a I little bit of a, a little bit of a review of kind of uh, of uh, of what actually what stigma actually is. What does it mean? Yeah, so I, I think the short answer is nobody really knows. <laughs> there's there's a lot of conceptualizations of it. And I think, you know, especially mm -hmm. if you're coming at it from a behavioral standpoint, mm -hmm. you know, what are some of those overt and covert behaviors that people are engaging in that, mm -hmm. you know, have some kind of endpoint to it? So maybe you think of stigma as like a functional component. Um, you know, maybe there's some RFT component to it where like there's a frame of coordination with you know, incapability, if you have something like, mm. you know, okay, that person looks like Y or has this ability like this or believes in this or functions like this. And, you know, based on your learning history, either, you know, contingency shaped or rule governed, you know, you kind of form these new mm, connections. And sometimes those connections are not very adaptive or not mm. very accepting and inclusive of the other person. And, even if you have, you know, there's a lot of like implicit studies associated with this where it's like, wow, you know, I took the IAT and I am super racist. And, mm -hmm. you know, you can have those thoughts, but not act on them, mm -hmm. you know, and you can have those thoughts and start kind of reflecting like, oh, that was weird. Where did that come from? Mm -hmm. And, you know, start addressing that privately and then publicly, you know, talking with other people um, about your experiences, maybe talking with folks who are accepting of this with lived experiences and starting to kind of loosen some of those like prejudicial and stigmatic frames mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. you know, adding a new set of information. So I don't know. I, I think for me, at least, you know, stigma is that kind of interaction between uh, your overt and covert behaviors. So, you know, what are your initial reactions versus what you're actually doing mm -hmm. and what has been contingency shaped, you know, from your environment, you know, people yeah. saying yes, no, or I don't know what news channel you watch, I guess. Um, <laughs> And what has been reinforced and punished over time mm -hmm. versus, okay, now I have this base from when I was a kid, you know, having this contingency shaped, how am I going to expand this out and interact with people in the world? Mm -hmm. You know, so it's, mm -hmm. I, I think it's a complex system with many, many pieces. And I don't know, I don't know if behavior analysis is the one to answer it, but I, I think we have a technology that could at least assist with that and collaborate with other fields to understand what that is a little bit better so that we can actually target it instead of making a lot of assumptions on how to decrease it yeah no no i think that makes a lot of sense and actually i think we're gonna we're gonna dig in a little bit because part of your paper actually takes a deep dive of sort of an rfk analysis of stigma and so I'm, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, i'll ask that question shortly um i also recall again from the, a previous interview that it's interesting the um, uh, the the origin, sort of the origin of the word stigma. Um, I think a mm -hmm. lot of folks, uh, some folks, if they come from sort of religious backgrounds, might sort of connect this to sort of the stigmata, you know, of, of mm -hmm. sort of, you know, the uh, the, uh, the idea of the, the crucifixion and people mm -hmm. sort of have blood appearing on the hands and feet and whatnot. But more so, it, 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 it comes from uh, the term for uh, 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 for, it's Latin for a, it's a, a literal mark, so an actual you know whether it be the blood or or some sort of branding or engraving or tattoo or whatever uh, that mm -hmm. that's placed on a person uh, and signifies that that person is is less valued than everyone else. 
that's kind of where that that term originates and you know and, and certainly can make makes me think of you know uh, you know things like the holocaust and and uh, you know with with the stars and the and the tattooing and and some of those um, you know difficult situations where you know folks were literally you know branded as being less than and so that's sort of carried over to now um exactly in, in we, we don't see this in the paper, but in 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 the preprint that came out, and I think that may still be available to some folks if you're like on ResearchGate or whatnot uh, for this article. Um, uh, and as folks know, preprints often are 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 uh, are quite a bit quite a bit uh, a bit longer. Actually, sorry, before I touch on that, I just remembered you also mm-hmm. referred to um, just just for folks understanding, um, you know, because uh, you you mentioned EAT and and then becoming super racist so just for folks that don't know what that is that's the implicit association test right mm-hmm. that's what you're referring to yep and essentially you just have you know a bunch of stimuli in front of you so um, different people different um sometimes there's like control stimuli associated with that too like mm-hmm. a tree or something mm-hmm. <laughs> and you have to say you know like how likely are you to x so like there's irap versions so um which is kind of like the rft version of mm-hmm. the iat mm-hmm. and you know, you essentially look at the stimuli and respond to whatever question mm-hmm. they have on there. Sometimes it's yes, no. Yes. Sometimes it's, you know, which word is more associated with this person or this picture and so on and so forth. Yes, gotcha. And folks can get a little more information on the IAD and get some links and whatnot. Um, in a previous episode I did with uh, Dr. Victoria Suarez, because she did a paper on, on again, sort of with RFT connection on um, on, uh, on on racial biases, and she talks talks a lot about the IATs and and the different versions there, so folks can check that out. Um, going back to what I was going to get at, though, in the preprint, you know, uh, there was a nice section in the beginning that didn't make it into publishing uh, that reviewed some phenomena um, that um, you know may perpetuate stigma um, mm-hmm. and. Um, I, I've already recorded, and will it will it will have already, it will have already played the uh, a, a trigger warning for folks, um, just because we are going to talk about sort of some things that um, uh, you know uh, may, may may trigger folks as as far, as far as relating to stigma, some sort of historical things, and and um, just sort of phenomena on kind of how poorly folks are treated in certain situations, um, and and so I was hoping we could kind of touch on those a little bit. Um, um, just because I, these are concepts that up until sort of reading your preprint, I had, I was not actually aware of some of these. And, and now since, since I've read that, and since you and I have talked a few times, a lot of these have kind of come up a lot more and, uh, and, and these terms, particularly this first one. And so I was hoping you might be able to just describe them and maybe, uh, talk a little bit about kind of how they relate to stigma. Uh, the first one was this, this thing called othering. What's othering? Yeah. So, I mean, the, the short version of it is um, kind of goes back to like the labeling component that you talked about, you know, like with the roots of what stigma is. And it's, you know, you're literally utilizing your vocalizations to make someone different or separate someone from a particular group, usually your own, right? Like mm. those other people are doing this or they, not us, you know, and you start using mm. like all these words, you know, so you kind of the language connection with that. And that, then very much leads to different things where it's like, well, we aren't doing this, right? They are mm-hmm. doing this, or we have this expectation that they are not meeting. Mm-hmm. And that further separates out 
people. I mean, just in the language that we have. So then if you're creating some kind of frame of coordination there or something along those mm. lines, you know, you're a connection, you're like, well, if they're not part of my group, then maybe I shouldn't reach out to them for something, right? For mm-hmm. connection, for socialization. Um, or if, you know, you're making policies and you think that this group doesn't need this or can't access this or um, uh, doesn't deserve this, you know, mm-hmm. in some cases. And, you know, with recent legislation across the country, mm-hmm. uh, in the U.S. right now, there's a lot of shenanigans going on that's not okay. Mm-hmm. Um, don't want to dive too far into that. <laughs> um, but... You know, it, it's lack of resources then that that leads to. So yeah. you know, those conversations lead to ideologies and ideologies lead to direct policy changes. And sometimes it works in people's favor and people get stuff. And sometimes they're put into a different group. Yes. And then that group is othered. You know, that yes. group is the other other side that doesn't have access to the resources. So yes, it's, it's, yes. uh, it's, it's spooky, like what is allowed to happen and what types of conversations and language can happen behind closed doors that have very real, real life effects on the people that they're supposed to be affecting positively. Yeah. It's, it's really, it's really dehumanizing and, and actually in a way kind of reminds me of, of our earlier sort of exchange around the term patient and just these kind of labeling Mm -hmm. terms. I, I, I see this a lot in, in kind of, you know, adult residential settings where it's the staff and the residents and, um, Instead of it just being, you know, um, sort of people people who live at this house that we're supporting, you know, mm-hmm. these residents are all kind of just automatically put into a category, um, and, and a lot of assumptions are made. Um, mm-hmm. I was talking. I just, I just, the recent, I just released uh, uh, yesterday episode thirty five um, with Doctor Denny Reed, and he he gave one example that I had never even considered um, was that um, uh, which which I think is, a, is, is an it could be an interesting example of othering he talked about how he went and visited a, a group home once I think they do an assessment or whatnot and mm-hmm. and when he ent- when, and, and, and this was I think in his earlier days and he entered the group home and, and the residents were all around his age. So he was a young, a young researcher, probably just out of his, just finished, maybe just finished his doctorate or whatever, probably, mm-hmm. you know, probably, probably around your age. And, um, and, um, and, and the residents of the group home were also about, about the same age. And, um, he noticed when he went in that he was introduced as, as Mr. Reed. Um, so maybe this was pre, pre PhD, but anyway, he was introduced as, as Mr. Reed. And then the resident, who was the same age or maybe a little bit older, was introduced as Bob, and mm. just he and, and and Danny was just sort of analyzing and noticing that it was it was an interesting dynamic that he as the visitor it gets sort of this you know more professional sort of dignified Mister, where the resident in the home is automatically first name basis, um, mm. and uh, it's it's a small thing. I mean, it's not like sort of patient or, you know, or labeling someone as, you know, on their behavior, which has I mean, mm-hmm. some other really problematic issues, but it just goes to show how, how easily, you know, we, we get into this kind of othering. Yeah. And, and sometimes we don't even think about it, yeah. you know, I mean that, that right there, I mean, creates a power differential between people. And just like, as you said, I mean, it's, you know, 
I guess, no different when people say, well, I should say it's very different in many cases, mm-hmm. but um, it's like when, you know, you're a professor in a classroom and it's like, oh, my name's Dr. This. What's your name? Oh, my name's Tom. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, you know, we could refer to each other by our first names. That's okay. I've, I've myself, I, I really try to stray away from the doctor title, mm-hmm. you know, every once in a while they say, and I'm like, okay, that's fine. Um, I don't know. I've grown accustomed to my first name, but, <laughs> but beside that, it's, you know, it's little things like that though, that add up, you yes. know, a, a lot of these like, you know, components of stigma and prejudice, it, it's not this like, you know, one day I was fine. And mm-hmm. now today I'm have a ton of stigma towards this person, mm-hmm. um, which I'm sure there might be some cases of that with a variety of different things, but that's, that's another conversation. Um, it, it's those little things that build up over time and slowly mm-hmm. solidify those frames of, you know, I am better than X or yeah. this person has a different stature in society and you associate different statures with what that person can do and what that person is allowed to do to other people, honestly, you know, yeah. and I, I think little things like that add up to not inclusive programming and, you know, leads to therapists going in saying, well, I'm the behavior analyst. I am the expert Mm -hmm. and you're already othering everybody else in there. And that's, that's just a recipe for disaster. No, absolutely. Uh, I recommend if folks aren't familiar with the term othering to dig into it, there's some really good stuff out there. Um, uh, I'll see if I can find it for the show notes. Uh, There was an article I read recently. Um, There's a couple autistic researchers that have been doing a lot of really interesting kind of studies on othering and and that sort of perspective. And so I think it's really worth a dive because I think it's it's a real... It's a real big barrier, and I don't think it's something that we consider at all, sort of, you know, in 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 the way we do a lot of our intervention, and this, you know, and, and all of the, all of this kind of goes back to some of these ideas of reform, you know, that I think mm-hmm. that, that our field is looking at, you know, and it's not all just about whether ABA, you know, and we're not, I'm not going to dive into this too much, but it's not all about whether it's <laughs> ABA is abuse or not abuse or all that sort of stuff. There's lots of other issues, like these mm-hmm. sort of really kind of what seem like kind of minute details, you know, calling me Mr. versus my first name doesn't seem like a big mm-hmm. deal, but you combine them all together and, and, and do that over years and years of intervention and repetition and and and, and you're, you're, you're putting these people into compartments that maybe they didn't need to be in. Um, so yeah, I think that's, I think that's really interesting to think about. Uh, there's another one you talk about, which I, you know, I, I never really considered and, um, uh, uh, because I know I used to do these myself when I first kind of got in the field and I was trying to sort of train my staff to sort of, um, I think the goal is to try to, you know, create some empathy to sort of understand, try mm-hmm. to understand what some of these, the folks you're, you're supporting are going through and, and feeling. Uh, but at the same time, it can be problematic. And it's this idea of simulation exercises. What are these and how can, how can these be problematic? Yeah. So I think at the beginning, you know, simulation exercises were touted as like this awesome thing, you know, like how can I alter my body to get a more direct experience of, you know, a disability, like, you know, do I bind my hands and then try to, you know, work with something so you know kind of simulating someone that doesn't have you know very good use of their hands or at least the level that they would prefer unless they you know do prefer that they um but there's um you know wearing different goggles for like sight considerations maybe wearing headphones for hearing considerations Mm -hmm. things along those lines um and you know on the outset it looks nice and fluffy and people are like well i'm really experiencing what this person does and mm-hmm. to a certain extent maybe maybe it does you know mm-hmm. and and you kind of get a different perspective 
But the, the thing that happens, I feel like with a lot of these components are one, who is actually mm, giving those simulation trainings? Because if it's someone without that lived experience and someone says like, all right, here's, you know, headphones and now you can't really hear anything. And this is exactly what it's like. And if mm-hmm. you've never had that lived experience, it like, you don't know what it's like. Um, so, you know, I, I think that's a huge issue with a lot of those trainings that people do. I mean, you should have people with lived experience talking about these things. And if they feel comfortable sharing what that might feel like, you know, maybe that's what it is, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, that, that could be a huge issue on that end. But then on the other end too, if you're like receiving the training and you say, well, I know exactly what it feels like. I remember this one time that blah, 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 blah. And you know, like I went through the simulation training and it totally changed my life. And I know exactly how you feel. And it's like, well, cool. You went through 15 minutes of something that someone experiences Mm -hmm. in their life. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's almost always in a negative light of like, Oh, look, look how impaired this person is. Look, look, look at this less than, you know, look at this, you know, issue, this, 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 you know, how bad is this? And, you know, there's a lot of pieces where people are are not seeing this as a negative thing. You know, I mean, there's disability identity theory and, and people's identities and, and ownership of, you know, whatever disability or impairment or how that person perceives that is something that's missing from a lot of those pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think for myself, you know, I'm pretty open about my own disability identities with um, uh, ADHD, but then also some cognitive impairments with um uh, when I was younger, I had uh, cancer when I was very, very young, six months old. Um, and through a lot of the chemotherapy, you know, the theory was, you know, it was affecting my developing brain mm-hmm. and, um, they, you know, it's harder for me to learn things, um, and stay focused and that there's just a lot of components to that. And mm-hmm. throughout school I had supports. Um, I didn't really have, you know, a lot of IEP support until a little bit later in you know, grammar school, um, and then I had 504 in high school, but I already had my own conceptualization of like, this is bad. I should not be acting like this. And I never used hmm. them and my hmm. grades suffered, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, we didn't make those equitable systems in there. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if, if I'm doing a training and I'm talking about like, what does that feel like? Like for me, you know, trying to recall something, you know, is almost like having a bunch of, you know, like, you know, like at a library where they used to have like the index cards, mm-hmm. um, to try to find a book, you know, for me, it's like, can't, I can't always remember where I put the information for lack yes. of a better term yes. and I'm opening the drawer and I find it in drawer number four and I'm like, Oh sweet. Here you go. <laughs> you know, here's the card, the drawers close and they're like, Oh, can you get me that card again? I'm like, Oh shit. I don't know where, yes. <laughs> where the next thing is. And then I'm going through drawer one, two, three. Um, so, you know, doing stuff like that, um, you know, sometimes thinking more quickly and, you know, that works for me. And that's an example I give because I feel comfortable with that because I have direct lived experience with that. But, you know, if some people are like, well, this is what the pain feels like, or this is what the sight is, and this is what hearing is. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if I don't have, like, I'm not going to be doing that Mm -hmm. because engaging Mm -hmm. in that kind of perpetuates that stigma and Mm -hmm. perpetuates that, like, you know, I don't know if you don't have the lived experience, you don't know what you're talking about. You know, you can have sympathy, but there's only so much you can do. Yeah, no, and, and and you and I have had some really good chats about our. I, I, I forgot. I always forget how much we have in common with the ADHD, and <laughs> and uh, you know, I, I didn't have cancer as a child, but I, I suspect I had I had a brain injury as a child. Um, I had a short story as a 
something large and heavy landed on my head and I never I never oh, when I was four and I never went to the hospital and that, I was never yeah. treated for it and I'm pretty sure that has had some had some effects kind of long term um, and I, I do mm-hmm. definitely can relate to your your um, your uh, library index card um, problem I think for me I, I don't even know where any of the, the index cards are still um, the 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 next one uh, is interesting too and, and and we've been hearing more and more about this I think I think especially with um, you know with the advent of things like TikTok and whatnot um, a lot of the a lot of folks have come out and kind of really spoke against this in terms of you know uh, one, one term I've heard you know, uh, there's one particular individual, and I can't recall her name. You may know that that speaks a lot on um, uh, inspiration porn. They call it, mm. um, uh, and it kind of relates to this idea of um, sort of um, uh, you know, sort of disabled heroes, and 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 I think there's a term that's been called like super crips is a is a phrase mm-hmm. I've heard. I think that may, that may come out of a movie. Um, what, what's this all about? Special, right? Yeah, so, you know, in that component, and there's a really, um, I believe her name is Stella Young. She does a really, really good um, TED Talk about this. And yes, I, I encourage everybody to check that out. Um, and essentially it's saying like, you know, like one of the examples on there I thought was you know really good. It was an individual that was um, swimming, you know, like it, it was kind of like a shot from underneath. The person had mm. a surfboard and they had a prosthetic leg. And they said, well, if this person can do it, so can you. And you know it's almost like saying like well this person is you know impaired Mm -hmm. and not to the top level of what you are you you are already better than this person Mm -hmm. you know it's kind of the the assumption and you know like stuff like that like makes for you know stories that people can get behind or like oh they've overcome so much and it's like well no i just kind of live my life Mm -hmm. um i mean even you know within people i've had contact with in the past it's, you know, like, oh, you've overcome so much with cancer, with your learning impairment, and, and now you have a PhD, and look where you're at. Like, mm-hmm. oh, you, you've overcome this. And it's not that. I mean, it's, it's like, 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 what have you overcome? I'm still there. Like, I still have, you know, difficulties with things. And I found, you know, workarounds and, and people that would support me along the way, you know, to be able to do that, you know, and I'm, I'm you know, and, and fortunate that I had those support structures, and many people don't. Mm-hmm. And, um so like this idea of, you know, this, this like, wow, that's just so inspiring that, that you just live your life like this. Oh my mm-hmm. gosh, I can't even imagine mm-hmm. is very belittling. And it's basically saying like, you know, wow, like if I, if I were you, I, I would just be so sad, mm-hmm. you know, it's kind of like the undercurrent and it just, I, I don't know, it, it, it's, it's hugely, I don't know, infantilizing in many ways. It's, yes. um, it's just uncomfortable. It's Absolutely. uncomfortable to do that. So you know, but it's, it's perpetuated and it's, you know, you know, having, you know, folks with disabilities being, you know, like heroes, like, oh, you know, despite that, the fact that this person's in a wheelchair, they're able to do all these things mm-hmm. and, you know, which is just, I, I, I don't know. I mean, it, like I said before, it really comes back to that component of, you know, you are less than you're operating less than what the environment sees as you know the gold standard and you manage to get things done i'm very surprised that you're able to do that mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm. like form relationships or get degrees yeah. or have romantic partners yes I mean, it's, it, it's you know pervasive 
and certainly that 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 last example in particular and uh you know i think we could do a whole episode on which uh, i'm actually hoping to bring someone on to talk about that but the idea that yeah. you know kind of how stigma plays in a role and, and how we, we we you know we essentially just don't allow we don't even we, we're not even open to the idea of sort of you know uh, folks with you know uh, uh, maybe a, a moderate for lack of a better term, level of disability with having a romantic partner. You know, the, the idea that that could even be possible, you know, is is it, it, it is not even in, in, in a lot of folks' brains. I think we're starting to see some more examples of folks that are showing that, you know, that's not only possible, but, 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 but normal. And we're seeing some shows coming out, like a most recent one, I think, uh, the U.S., I think just recently released the U.S. version of Love on the Spectrum, um, which uh, I hear is, is a great show on Netflix. Um, um, and we're starting to see sort of more examples of, of, uh, of you know, the nor- for lack of a better term, the normalcy of, the, of folks, that it's, it's not, you know, it's not strange that, that folks would be able to achieve sort of these things and and it's not so heroic and special anymore but it's still a problem and and i can see how it contributes well i mean how much of that is you know stigma just especially around the idea of like love romantic partnership or just close you know intimate not always sexual but just intimate social connection with other people Mm -hmm. and you know how there's this expectation like, well, you need to work on yourself and be a hundred percent so that somebody else can love you and that you can have the ability to love someone else Mm -hmm. when, you know, folks that have been together for a really long time. I mean, I don't know. I think of, and and I'm not the gold standard here. So please, you know, Mm -hmm. anybody listening to this, um, you know, like my wife and I have been together for 13 years Mm -hmm. and we've, you know, and like, we're young, like we started in high school Mm -hmm. and we've, grown a lot together and mm-hmm. have seen a lot of crap and have mm-hmm. you know it, it wasn't pretty and it wasn't like oh we were ready to do this mm-hmm. so then we already place that on folks without disabilities that there's like some expectation that we have to reach before we are quote unquote ready to be yes. you know in a relationship with yes. someone you know and then if someone has a disability then if you already have that conceptualization for someone that doesn't have a disability hmm. you know for someone with a disability it's like oh wow this is so far gone from you know anything that could possibly happen right and how nasty is that I mean, hmm. it's, it's not like you know people have needs and urges mm-hmm. and wants and mm-hmm. you know want social connection it just might look topographically different for people and no, that should exactly. be celebrated exactly uh, this next item, I'm just going to kind of reiterate the trigger warning in case folks want to pause or fast forward okay. a couple minutes because um, we're going to touch a bit on assisted suicide and abortion. Um, and so I'll pause for a second. If you're planning on collecting continuing education credits for this episode, you'll need to enter the three secret words at www.cbiconsultants.com forward slash shop. The first secret word is Foxy. All right. Um, if anyone still remained, you know what we're talking about. Um, so uh, things like uh, assisted suicide and, and sort of automatic abortion um, and, and, and just even uh, in general, um, how, how do they play a role in stigma? 
Yeah. So, you know, I, I also just want to preface this with myself that I've never had direct contact or experience with any of these and never had to make these decisions. No. So every, you know, everything that I'm saying next is purely speculation and from like a very high level, non-nuanced. <laughs> um, Absolutely. Absolutely. And I know, yeah. and I know that so, to, 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 sorry to interrupt. I know that when you were in your pre preprint that you put out, mm-hmm. you are referencing some, some, some research and sort of studies mm-hmm. and stuff. And I know none of this comes from your own personal experience, but this was just sort of, sure. there was some stuff referenced, I think in the literature on this stuff. For sure. Yeah. So in that line, you know, it's, there have been some instances of assisted suicide where maybe the person didn't necessarily want that, or that person was convinced that going on with a particular ailment or impairment or disability was not worth it. Um, so that is, you know, entirely pervasive in many cases. Mm. Now, in some cases that might be warranted. And if the person really wants that, that is up to the person. It should not be up to doctors and families to tell that person what they want. Mm-hmm. Um, so at the end of the day, I mean, that, either side, you know, on these decisions, it should not be left up to other people that are. Yes. Yes. Um, you know, especially with the abortion component too, Mm -hmm. you know, there's many, um, I, I, and I'm sure there's people that listen to this podcast that have had to make very, 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 very difficult decisions. Absolutely. And that is, that is your decision to make at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, especially people that aren't able to, uh, ever have to make that decision with their own body should mm-hmm. not be the one making policies. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's, there's that hundred percent, hundred percent, you know, but there's this idea of, of, you know, like genetic testing ahead of time and saying like, okay, well, you know, does your child show genetic signs of having a particular disability and, you know, having that choice, you know, on the front end is kind of like saying like, well, do you want to have a child with a disability or do you want to abort and try again? Mm-hmm. And, for some people, you know, that can be the, that can be an impossible decision to make for folks. Um, you know, we see on TikTok and other components a lot where you know other people were asked this question, and they're like, "No, I, I want to keep my child," and they had a child with a disability and had a very great, wonderful life, mm-hmm. and you know, in a way that was happy and defined by them, and you know, hard, you know, in ways that you know only folks that experience that know how, but but you know rewarding and good Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. and positive um you know but some people half might have to make a decision like that you know maybe there's a case where um you know you're like beyond cases of like maybe your child would not survive past a certain Mm -hmm. time Mm -hmm. week or day Mm -hmm. um you know maybe uh, there's other considerations. So again, I'm, I'm not even going to pretend to know no, what no, any of for those sure, feel for like. For sure, for sure, yeah. Yeah. But no, and, and Conceptualization, I, oh, go for it. No, I guess I think, and I think, because uh, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, we're not certainly talking about personal decisions here and, and personal mm-hmm. experience. Uh, you know, if anything, I think one thing we're talking about is maybe is sort of sort of government policy and whatnot. Mm. Um, you know, I know in Canada, at least, or certainly in my province, um, the, there's a, a group called uh, Inclusion Inclusion BC, which is essentially uh, British Columbia is the province I live in, and, and essentially they're you know mm. an advocacy group um, uh, for, for for folks with um, um, uh, developmental disabilities and. Um, they they have had a lot of concern with um, sort of assisted suicide law in the in that 
you know, certainly as it applies to certain, you know, to I think what the what the policies were created for were for, you know, uh, you know, adults who were able to, you know, make decisions about their own health uh, and, 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 and typically have, you know, terminal illnesses that are, you know, just constant pain and discomfort and, and uh, you know, and, and, uh, and constant suffering and agony throughout or, or, or constant or constantly on heavy, heavy doses of medication to mitigate, which make them, you know, you know, very unresponsive. And so, you know, and so mm-hmm. basically just, you know, in some ways almost comparing themselves to being someone who is in a coma, you know, um, mm-hmm. and still feeling all those sorts of, sorts of um, sensations. And that's what, you know, I think assisted suicide was, was designed for. But then the way the laws are written, they open up the door for, um, and, and I know the terms are probably different in the U S but essentially they open up the doors for, sort of people to make decisions for them if they're mm-hmm. now from a legal perspective now lacking that capacity and mm-hmm. uh yeah so like power of attorney or something along those exactly lines. yeah and 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 certain and the problem is you know and certainly if, if you have you know maybe a, you know a, a, an individual who up until a certain point was able to make their own decisions and wrote their own will and you know said i I give the power to my husband or my spouse spouse to sort of make that choice for me um Mm -hmm. if i can no longer that's one thing Um, but i think the idea that there's a lot of there's a lot of adults children and adults adults in particular with developmental intellectual disabilities Mm -hmm. that have these sorts of agreements in place um in, in, in our province, they're called representation agreements. The next level up is something called a, a committee ship, um, which is essentially, you know, you, you and all, all of your rights are now removed. You are no longer a person under the law and, uh, and, and, and people can make decisions for you. And I've, I've supported adults who have had these committee ships in place and, you know, and, mm-hmm. and, 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 you know, the, the, the people that sort of hold those rights can make all the decisions, including those, including assisted mm-hmm. suicide. Um, and I think, and, and so that there's that fear, you know, that, you know, of sort of, a, you know, a, almost a, a eugenics kind of um, yeah. uh, repetition happening. And so, you know, I can definitely see how those concepts can kind of feed into the stigma, like, you know, and, and, and I sort of imagine being alive now, at least so you were, you were, you were, you were, you know, fortunate enough to not be one that was subjected to one of those things and you were able to now live your life. Um, but there's still sort of the, the idea that there was an option, you know, um, mm-hmm. that someone could have decided that I can't live or so, and, 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 and how that sort of plays into sort of my whole sort of, you know, um, you know, outlook on life and perspective of myself and on others. It's, it's, it's wild. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and it's, you know, I don't know. And like, I, I don't even know what even goes into all those decisions, mm-hmm. but it's, you know, I'm sure that also opens the doors, like you said, for, well, this person must not ever want to live like this. Mm-hmm. And again, that goes back to like a lived experience piece of, mm-hmm. you know, you can say like, if I was in that person's shoes, well, that's you with your own learning history and yes. shoes. That's not that person with their own learning history. So how can we take those empathetic approaches and ask? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm sure that also complicates things like, you know, if you don't have a, 
you know, in those situations, like if you don't have a will and, you know, something happens in the moment mm-hmm. and, you know, I, I, um, my cousin, when I was four years old, uh, the family had to make a very hard decision to do that. Mm. Um, they drown, um, but they were still alive, but th- there was <sighs> a lot of very difficult decisions around that. And a lot of things that, you know, especially as a kid going through that and not understanding what's going on with your cousin was hard to see and unpack and conversations <sighs> you never hope to have with people because that's, it's, it's there's a lot that goes into it and but you know to your point i i think there's slippery slopes with a lot of these things and we need to be more mindful about you know if we're putting policies in place to change the way people make choices there need to be policies in place to have resources available when after those choices are made Mm -hmm. or made for them whatever that is so yeah. yeah totally uh if if if, uh, if folks want to come back and and listen again, I'll I'll be sure to even jot the time down in the show notes of of, of when to return to the podcast if you felt uh, these were sort of triggering kind of topics. Um, one last sort of item you talked about, and I think it's just really important to touch on all of these because while you are well, when we get into sort of the 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 meat of your research around um, mm-hmm. you know the, the responding to stigma you know I think there's just a, I think folks really need to have a lot of these concepts in mind because mm-hmm. if anything prevention is 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 probably the 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 best way to sort of uh, reduce stigma and and thinking about some of these concepts and the way they work and especially as as a parent with young, young children uh, like yourself you know teach teaching these lessons to your kids so that early on you know they're not developing kind of kind of kind of these perspectives this last one though is um, is a little less probably a little less um, 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 sort of controllable. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you talk a little bit about, uh, in, in, again, in the preprint, about uh, the connection between uh, evolution and genetics and stigma. Can you touch on that a little bit? Yeah, so there, there's been some work on this. And, and you know, again, I'm not an expert on this, but it's kind of surveying the research. It's... I think this idea of kind of separating yourself from other people, there are evolutionary benefits to that, right? Where it's like, this is my group versus a group that might potentially um, remove resources from me from whatever that means, right? So, you know, if you think like evolutionarily back in the day, you know, is that like a hunter gatherer type thing? Is that um, I am this, you know, creature and that thing is stealing my food and then that becomes more complicated, you know, over time as we start doing vocalizations and and things like, you know, being out on, you know, a prehistoric prairie is not really a thing as much anymore. <laughs> and um, that starts getting into like, well, those people are taking my jobs or, or these people are a burden on the system. And, you know, there might be, and there's some suggestions around this for like stigma drives and whatnot, that there's, there's a potential link to saying like, like, okay, this person is taking up X resources and that's doesn't feel good for me. Right. Um, there's not a ton of research in this area and I don't know how valid this is. And you know, man, I, I super hope someone listens to this like 10 years from now or five years from now or next year. Mm-hmm. And it's like, Hey, we like totally explained how this works and how to address it. So, nice. you know, yeah. Um, but that might be there, you know, you might have your, you know, potentially some, you know, genetic component to, distinguish yourself from others mm-hmm. and, there, and there's value to that you know like i am different from you i, mm-hmm. I call myself something different i dress different i 
Uh, well, not too different. I think we have some of the same hats, uh, <laughs> 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 um, you know, but we have different beliefs and different yeah. learning systems. And, you know, that's to be able to distinguish between people is a pretty powerful survival tool, you know, like who is going to give me reinforcement, who's not going to give me reinforcement. And, you know, there might be a connection there associated with stigma, but again, I mean, it kind of goes back to the implicit piece, you know, maybe you experience that and you go, you know, you reflect and you give yourself time to reflect and go, man, that was, that was kind of a weird thought. Mm -hmm. How do I, (laughs) where did that come from? What do I do with this? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd be curious kind of what the, what the uh, you know, the perspective of, you know, folks like Steve Hayes and, and those guys that, that, that kind of have been diving a lot more into sort of this evolutionary psychology kind of perspective. Um, mm-hmm. Because it, it, it's not hard to sort of believe that, uh, you know, stigma has now become sort of a, you know, in a way part of the genome because this is not a, a, a new sort of, you know, a uh, phenomenon. This has been happening for, I think, as long as there's been, you know, human beings on the planet. Um, they've been, mm-hmm. you know, we've been, you know, comparing ourselves and and then putting people into different categories. Um, and often, you know, and I mean, it's only up until really, you know, the last couple of years that we've actually started to address some of the, you know, long term you know, um, effects of oppression, you know, that we've, we, that, that, you know, particularly, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, sort of from a, from a colonizing perspective that we put on folks, um, um, you know, and that goes, and I mean, some of that stuff goes back thousands of years. Um, and, uh, you know, and, uh, and there's just so many, you know, and certainly, uh, the, 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 you know, the, the, the inequality of, of men and women, and that goes back again, you know, to time, to, to time memorial, um, and so it wouldn't be surprising that thousands and thousands of years of, uh, of sort of, you know, these perspectives and these beliefs have now sort of entered the genome. So, yeah, if there is someone out there that's, you know, maybe done this work, it could be great for you to, to reach out because uh, I'm, I'm curious. Again, not, not a lot we can do about it here, um, you know, mm-hmm. sort of uh, in the fly, but I think just something to be aware of. I mean, we know that gen- yeah. genetics in, in general do not determine, you know, you know, you know, it, it, it's, it's nature and nurture, right? So it's not exactly the, the genes alone don't make the choices. So um, it's sort of, mm-hmm. you know, it's sort of like, um, you know, saying, you know, boys will be boys or those other sort of annoying phrases out there that sort of that's the way it's always been kind of thing. And so we, we, exactly. we assume that's the way it's got to be, but it doesn't have to be. Let's um, let, let, let's start looking at kind of, kind of the study a bit. Um, mm-hmm. And um, um before we do that, we you um, uh, I know you, uh, you uh, this study is 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 based on some other work and, and a bit of a uh, an extension of, of some work from uh, from from Mark Dixon and his colleagues. Um, uh, mm-hmm. And uh, what 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 did Dixon study and, and and what did his colleagues do? Yeah, so um, in his set of studies, uh, so there was a, a conceptual paper on RFT and terrorism and kind of where that comes from. Uh, again, conceptual. Um, Mm -hmm. And then there were two studies after that, really looking at um, uh, individuals, you know, from uh, supposedly the Middle East, you know, depending on a Google search, you know, obviously there's, there's many issues wrong with around that, but I think it was an interesting approach um, for that. Um, And really kind of looking at like, what, 
you know, relational frames are kind of there, like, like what kind of, you know, th this was more, I guess, like a stimulus equivalence paradigm. And then there's a transformation to stimulus function. So there might be, you know, more RFT components to that, but that's, mm. you know, something to dig into later. Um, but really kind of saying like, okay, how does this individual view these people in the picture um, that you see? And, you know, there was a variety of different pictures, you know, folks with different backgrounds and then control pictures and things like that. So, you know, saying like, okay, how likely are you to approach this person, you know, or how safe, you know, something along those lines. And essentially what was done then is, you know, through like relational frame paradigms and through stimulus equivalence paradigms, it's, you know, you start relating, you know, A to B, B to C, and then you test A to C. So essentially taking this picture, relating it to some, you know, arbitrary stimuli, I don't know, arrows, um, color, you know, what, what have you. And then you relate that color to something else like capability, approachability, acceptability, mm. you know, things like that, and, you know, words that are generally associated with that. You know, if you opened up a thesaurus, like what's, what's there. Um, and then you start testing between the picture and this other relation that you had. So there's like this mediating stimuli in between. And, you know, what they kind of found was, you know, like through like kind of, I mean, pretty simple, you know, 15 to 30 minute paradigms of, you know, computer-based instruction, you know, people's perception of, you know, folks in the pictures changed to become more approachable and less like mm. something that's associated with bad or something associated with terrorism. Cause this was shortly after nine 11, mm. um, at least in the U S here. So, you know, there's a pretty powerful study to say like, okay, in this short amount of time, mm -hmm. what can you do? What can you change? And, you know, that, that was something that really interested me, you know, especially, you know, having, you know, my own history with, you know, folks, you know, engaging in various microaggressions towards me and, you know, ostracization from, you know, my peers and, mm. you know, being called all, a host of names mm -hmm. and, you know, like, Hey, y'all, if you're listening to this, look where I'm at. <laughs> mm -hmm. But, um, it's, it, it really got me thinking, can we use this paradigm for other perceptions and other prejudices and stigmas. And I wanted to apply that to, you know, how do people view individuals with disability? Hmm. Really cool. Really cool. So uh, the study actually doesn't, um, in, in the title anyway, uh, doesn't, doesn't yeah. reference stigma. You, you reference uh, this concept of capability. What are you talking about there? What, what do you mean by capability? Yeah. So, you know, like when, when I'm looking at the past research and really trying to think about an operationalized stigma, I mean, how, how do we how do we do that? And then how do you make that into a testable hypothesis? Mm. You know, I mean, I, I imagine, you know, like Skinner trying to think of verbal behavior and, you know, as we know, there's a lot of difficulties taking the book, you know, a conceptual book and trying to make it a measurement thing mm -hmm. based on the terms, mm -hmm. you know, McCorkendale's got really good articles on why that was hard. Um, but when you think of something like stigma, I really started, you know, looking in the research and kind of saying like, okay, how did people break this down? Like, what are those measurable components of what stigma could potentially be? And one thing that kind of came up with previous research, you know, through Patrick Corrigan's work at IIT, um, you know, even the Alport stuff, you know, in contact theory in 1950s, it, I don't know, it, it, it really seemed to kind of boil down to how likely do you think this person is able to engage in life? And, you know, mm. I, I kind of broadly did that as capability. Mm. Um, so, you know, that's, that's at least my, my own theory of that and mm. when you think of it that way there's there's ways that you can measure that a little bit easier than just saying like oh here's your level of stigma oh you scored a five you suck 
Mm. <laughs> but, you know, the, the other piece that this came from was, I mean, even just asking around, you know, thinking back to when I was a kid, but then also just asking around, like, you know, you might say to someone like, oh, how, you know, what do you think of this person with a disability? Like, oh, this person can do anything. They can blah, 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 you know, and, and a lot of positivity associated with it. Mm. But then when you really started digging deep, like, is this person able to form close relationships? Mm. Is this person able to hold a job on their own? Is mm -hmm. this person able to live on their own? Um, and then you started seeing people kind of stray away and being like, well, I don't know, maybe with a lot of X, like a lot of support, maybe with, and it really got me thinking like, ah, I don't know, maybe, maybe capability is the way to kind of approach this of, mm -hmm. you know, how likely is this person able to do these things or how do you think that's going to happen? So that's, that's kind of where the capability piece came from. No, I like that. And, and I think there was a, there's actually a, someone, someone put a study out recently. Um, and I don't know if it's a, the same and I'm, 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 I'm totally basing this on the, the title and I didn't actually read the article. <laughs> so this could be a totally, um, um, uh, inappropriate, um, relation, but, so there, there was a couple of recent articles that talk about sort of how to set up capable environments. Are you familiar with that work at all? I can't think of that just no. right off the bat, but I mean, it, it's really that like environment of success, right? Yeah. Like if you make um, it more I'll see if I can find it for the show notes, but it, it, it's, I, I'm curious if, if there's a connection there. Anyway, um, Kind of get you've you've touched a bit on kind of RFT and and that certainly I, I think the 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 focus sort of uh, framework um, of of your work in this study and so and so and we kind of touched on this a little bit at the beginning when we were to just sort of trying to do a little bit of a review but you've you've done a you've done a a nice um, kind of RFT analysis of stigma which I think you know is is pretty cool and you know I didn't. You know, I think I, I'm glad I was able to inter interview a few folks before you, Vic Suarez. Again, I, mm -hmm. you know, my hands raised for your your lovely um, um, sim simple explanation of some of the concept of RFT to me. I would not have a clue what um, uh, Rock was talking about today without you. Um, <laughs> I'm still a little mind boggled by some of it, but it's starting to come together. Um, uh, but um, I'm. I'm wondering if you could maybe just sort of uh, to, to give me the full analysis with essentially have you read 10 pages from your paper. So I won't make you do that, but if you could maybe just <laughs> give me a bit of, bit of a summary of kind of, 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 uh, of, of what an RFT analysis of stigma looks like. Yeah. So I, I think, you know, like the, uh, I guess spark notes version is, you know, everything that we see and everything that we do, you know, as long as there's like memory associated with it or connection associated with mm, it mm. kind of falls into at, at least how we understand it kind of falls into these frames of yes. how do you relate stimuli, right? So, you know, how, why is this an apple? Why is this a dog? Why mm -hmm. is this your partner? You know, like how do those things relate? Mm -hmm. um, so then everything you come in contact with after that kind of builds into these other frames in your relational network overall. So, you know, when we kind of think of like, okay, I saw this apple, and then you go to the grocery store and you're like, man, I'm looking for this red apple. And then you go to the grocery store and you see a green apple for the first time and you read the sign and you go, you know, like, oh, this is a Honeycrisp apple. And you're like, oh, no shit, this isn't a red apple. <laughs> um, so, you know, your network expands mm -hmm. and you're like, okay, well, you know, apples can also be green and yellow and, and all sorts of colors. Um, then this gets complicated when you start thinking of things of like social rules, 
right? Mm. So, you know, you start thinking of like, oh, this is good. This is bad. Approach this person. Don't approach that person. Mm. You know, go in this neighborhood. Don't stop at the stop signs in this neighborhood. Mm. And, you know, you have these base frames from your verbal community. And sometimes it could be contingency shape. And then people overgeneralize that to everything. Like, oh, I had a bad experience with this person once. And now everybody that reminds me of that person is linked to this initial aggressor or whatever. Um, and, and that can create some pretty nasty, inappropriate connections, you know, but the person is experiencing these things and that can be reinforced by the verbal community, you know, that can be, you know, reinforced, I guess, you know, surreptitiously, or, you know, maybe there's some kind of own reinforcement, you know, you're building up your own biases and then you get a lot of confirmation for it and you're like, oh, yep, look, that's what I thought. And you Mm -hmm. ignore all the other information around it. So you know, RFT then for me is, um, you know, especially uh, Jordan Belisle's work now with relational density as well, I think mm. can really help expand on this and like how tied those connections are um, and how heavy they are, you know, quote unquote heavy. Mm. Um, but, you know, for me, I think RFT offers a unique way to kind of dig into what those frames are and are there ways that we can loosen those connections and add in something at, at the very least a little bit more re- like reflection mm-hmm. of, mm-hmm. you know, like instead of reacting right away, you know, I see this thing, I have this function associated with this thing. And then if you can give yourself the time to say like, Oh, that was, that was weird. Like what, where did that come from? Mm-hmm. You know, that can give you enough time to start introducing new information instead of being so fused and being very reactionary to the things you see around you. So mm-hmm. that, that's kind mm-hmm. of the, kind of the basics of it. So maybe just take us uh, sort of through a, you know, a, a kind of top level um, journey through the study. So what, what did it look like? What what you what you do and what you find out? Yeah. So um, at the top level piece of this, I mean, to try to figure out what type of scale I wanted to use. So you know, I, I used. Um, uh, you know, there's a lot of limitations associated with this, but um, the acceptance and action questionnaires, and there's a stigma version of this too. Um, there's been some pretty interesting, you know, Kraft had an article on this, hmm. um, you know, connection between psychological flexibility and stigma. And, you know, supposedly at its base, you know, RFT and ACT are supposed to inform each other, although I would make the, the argument that ACT doesn't necessarily inform RFT, but that's another conversation. Um, RFT then at the base can help to release and loosen up connections, you know, and become a little bit more flexible with the things that you see in your environment. So those were kind of some of the the measures used. But then as far as like looking at this capability idea, um, there's a great quality of life scale that uh, Burkhart in 89 and Flanagan in 78 kind of, you know, talked about and expanded on. And it would ask questions, you know, just a, a, a bunch of questions about like relationships, needs, wants, things like that. And to shorten that up, you know, to make sure that people are really attending to the question instead of just clicking, you know, like four all the way through, um, uh, Zocolto, uh, was it like 2019 kind of found like some of the top five categories that were most related to capability. And it was, you know, can this person get what they want? Uh, can they form relationships? Can they help others? Can they understand their own strengths and weaknesses? Uh, <laughs> however that's defined. And then can this individual participate in social activities? So we see some, uh, I presented some GIFs or GIFs. I, I, 
I haven't decided which way I want to land on that one, um, of individuals that may or may not have disabilities based on YouTube searches and consulting with people and reaching out to the people in the YouTube videos as well, saying mm. like, hey, is it okay if I use this? Um, and that's something we've kind of expanded on. I'll talk about a little bit later. Mm -hmm. um, I Nobody's done this, as far as I know, at least in our field, with GIFs before, so like mm -hmm. movement. Um, so we had folks that, you know, maybe engaged in stereotypy that weren't perceived to be in distress, at least as far as the folks in the video said. Um, uh, so I, I wanted to be very careful of that. I don't want folks in distress and say like, hey, let's use you for research. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. So, you know, just seeing different movements. Um, then I had other like control pictures of folks that, you know, maybe didn't have that. So you wouldn't know if that person had like a, a public accompaniment of things that you might relate to as a disability. Mm -hmm. um, there's a bunch of limitations around that, but I, I tried to do something a little bit different. So they saw these pictures, uh, these gifts, they would answer these questions and then they moved on. Mm -hmm. So the relational training piece was, you know, you'd see these gifts on the bottom, you'd relate it to an arrow. And I would basically just say, Hey, pick the best one that matches with this arrow. Mm. And you know, it was an arbitrary stimuli. So that like these arrows were like up and down diagonal. And then there was like a weird, I don't know, squiggly one. Mm. Um, I don't know. It's some kind of polygon. Um, <laughs> and I would reinforce, you know, this is related to this and the person had to figure it out. Cause we kind of see in some of the research that when someone kind of comes at the answer themselves, sometimes they maintain that relationship better. Um, mm -hmm. at least mm -hmm. in the short term, long term, I'm not sure. Um, so they would relate, you know, the initial pictures to the stimuli and to the arrow. And then we would do that again with, um, words. Mm -hmm. So, you know, like this picture would be related to up and down arrow. And then, then we would have words on the bottom and the up and down arrow would be there and it'd be something like capability or, you know, um, um, power or, uh, um, I, I can't remember mm -hmm. all the words I used. Sure, sure. Skill, sure, sure. things like that. Um, so then, then we tested between, you know, the picture and the words and see if there's a relationship. Mm -hmm. And, you know, some of it was reinforced. And then after a while, it wasn't. And we just kind of saw what happened. You know, how did people relate these pictures? Mm -hmm. And what we saw then at the end of the study was, you know, people started seeing, um, individuals in these pictures that you know had maybe some kind of public accompaniment with movement or something along those lines um, again i want to change that in the future too um, with being more capable than they had before and there was you know not a huge statistical analysis for one for the study that was published on here there's more of a single subject analysis and something we're expanding later but there was a, a switch in flexibility there was an increase in um, perceptions of capability and um even afterwards, uh, just from a qualitative standpoint, people are like, oh, you know what? I kind of noticed myself responding differently to this picture than I did before. And it was pretty cool seeing that and seeing people answer that at the end, you know, like, hey, I, I kind of changed my mind here for a second. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that was kind of the, the nuts and bolts. And, you know, I, in a short amount of time, we were able to like momentarily change potential perceptions now can that undo decades of life probably not mm -hmm. um so there's more studies that we're going to do beyond that but that's that's kind of the relationship we had there and you know and uh, the fastest person that did it was 10 minutes and the slowest uh, i shouldn't say slowest and the person that took 
uh, the most time was about two hours to go through the whole thing. So people have different learning styles with that. So that was kind of an interesting measure to look at as well. Um, yeah. And that, that's kind of what we saw and we're like, Hey, there's maybe there's something here and we can kind of see which relational frames might be involved in stigma. The second secret word is firefighter. Really cool. I think it's, I think you touched on it already, but I think it's important to note that, that, you know, RFT in and of itself has not been around as a theory for, you know, that long um, mm-hmm. compared to sort of some other things. And so I think we're, we're just, I think we're just starting to see some studies coming out where, you know, we're, we're using RFT to sort of address, you know, some of these uh, really important kind of social issues. But I think it's an important disclaimer for folks that, you know, it's 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 really early days um, mm-hmm. in, 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 in sort of these studies. These are really kind of conceptual, you know, um, uh, you know, it's it's not like we're suddenly going to have, um, you know, uh, everybody, every, everybody starting their university career by taking you know, an, an online, uh, you know, training in RFT to sort of reduce their stigma or whatnot. I mean, it'd be awesome to see something like that one day. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, this is really early, early conceptual stuff. And so I don't, I don't mm-hmm. think folks need to sort of look at this as being, okay, how do I apply this and, and start reducing stigma tomorrow? Um, or similarly to, you know, how do I, you know, to the, to the implicit bias study that uh, Vic Suarez did, you know, we're not, she's not immediately going to start getting, you know, eradicating racism with, uh, you know, a, a 20 minute computer program. Um, but yeah, so I, but, but, but really, really kind of neat stuff. Um, I noticed you, um, you were using this thing called this, uh, to measure capability, this general capability scale. Mm-hmm. Um, and, so the scale is essentially kind of a, a modified quality of life scale um, mm-hmm. to measure capability. So uh, there, there seems to be sort of an uh, you know, an implication maybe that that quality of life and capability are, are correlated. Do you think that's the case? Or I at least theorized that maybe maybe it is right. So I I definitely want to dig way more into that. Um, cause again, I, I, I think stigma, you know, kind of, there's some connection between overt versus covert behaviors that I mm. believe. And I don't know, maybe there's a bunch of other type of correlational studies we can do associated with this to start tightening that up a little bit. Cause I wonder if, if it, it you know, and, and not certainly from by any intention of yours or by through the process of the study, but I'm wondering if somehow, you know, uh, this could even promote stigma in some ways. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, I, I think about sort of just, it, I've talked about this on a few different episodes with a few different folks, and I talk about a lot with colleagues about just how, generally speaking, quality of life measures are so subjective, um, mm-hmm. and, and sort of what, you know, you know and, and, and often, and, and often you know, and, and for, this will be a trigger word for some folks, but often ableist, I think, um, yeah. in, in the way that, in the sense that, you know, um, they're often based on sort of norms that were created by, you know, folks that, that are, you know, neurotypical or whatnot. Um, mm-hmm. and, um, and so therefore, you know, our, 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 their, uh, one's perception of capability, I think is, is linked to sort of one's perception of quality of life where neither mm-hmm. of those may actually be the perspective of the actual individual with a disability. 
Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I, I think, you know, I mean, Skinner talked, talked a lot about this in the past too. I mean, just the very act of science is not beyond the bias of the scientist and, um, that's huge. I mean, that's, that's a big piece on here. And, and, you know, looking at this own measure too, I mean, why are these the top things and why is this something that we mm-hmm. should measure people against? I mean, like in a perfect world, it'd be awesome if every study had some kind of like individualization of data based mm-hmm. on that own person. Like, mm-hmm. you know, how does that person view success in life and, and what has that wrought? And, um, I, I think there's a lot of interesting pieces to do that. And yeah, 100%. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, engaging in this is, you know, there's a lot of ableism that happens in this research, even with good intentions. And, and the fact is you got to get published and, uh, and, 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 you know, and, and journals and are, are, are looking for data. They're looking for validated metrics and, and, and mm-hmm. so on and so forth. And so, you know, sometimes you've just got to use those tools to sort of, you know, get the message out. I, you know, I mean, I don't think the mm-hmm. um, the primary goal of your study was to, you know, sort of um, um, uh, promote the the GCS as the almighty yeah. the almighty measure. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. um, uh, but you know, we've got to use them. I mean, I, I was talking to uh, um, uh, a recent guest, uh, Chris Bigby, out in Latrobe in Australia, and she's been doing some really fantastic work around kind of. Measuring um, uh, measuring good quality versus sort of lesser quality group homes, um, and uh, she's got a, a PhD student that she had that designed this thing called the the group home culture scale, and uh, mm-hmm. some neat guideposts around that, um, and so nice. a few and a few yeah really cool and a few other measures, but the the. The, the, the main point of the kind of one of, of the conversation that we had was that you know it, it's it's really difficult to come up with you know and a measure a, a, a you know a generalized aggregate measure mm-hmm. that's also individualized and, and, and how could exactly. you I mean it's almost like you know like how, how do you create something that's generalized and individualized at the same time. I don't even know if that's exactly. possible. Yeah, but can you actually measure that if it's not like technically measuring the same thing? Yeah, I mean, yeah, 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 yeah. So it's it's tricky. Then, does that make the research inherently ableist then too, right? Where, where like if the expectation is, you know, we need stats on this and we need to right. measure this, you know, are we forcing kind of that issue on other people? I, I think that's a very important question. Well, yeah, I think in a way we are. I mean, I think in a way mm-hmm. most of our research is inherently ableist. But is it the research that's an ableist, or is it the systems? You know, I think it's the systems more that are ableist that 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 um, you know that that you're sort of publishing in. Like it, it's mm-hmm. the, the you know the policies of the particular journal, um, you yeah. know the the Good rules read. around peer peer review, and sort of all these sorts of pieces that. Um, you know, um, um, uh, that have been in place for decades in, in journals across the sciences. Um, um, you know, I, I think there's, uh, you know, a, some some major s- systemic um, pieces that need to be addressed in there. And, and they're going to continue to be ableist. And, and there's really not much you can do about it, but you got to get your work out. Yeah, and I think one of the things that, you know, looking at this and what some of my students, um, uh, Christy and Luke, I'm shouting out to you guys because you really hmm. helped me out with this. Um, we were able to get a grant within our school to be able to have like consulting fees for, uh, engaging with autistic folks about, 
um, talking about what type of research we want to try to do, what are considerations mm. around the stimuli, around the measures. And then if there was any time that, you know, someone was uncomfortable and multiple people were uncomfortable with that about a particular research topic, if there wasn't any way to alter that to the liking of the folks that we were working with, mm. uh, we just cut the study. We're like, okay, hey, this is not valid and we don't have to do this. You know, cool. like we're, we're not trying to, it, yeah, it's, it was it was awesome. It was a really cool experience. And the students really, you know, pushed my own bounds of like what science is and how to engage in that. Yes. And it, it was, it was cool. We got, you know, um, a, a good amount of people, you know, under this, and I hope to continue this, especially with folks with other disability identities. Um, and, and folks, you know, listen to this, if you are listening to this, thank you so much for engaging in that. That was just so cool. Um, and at the end of the day, you know, a big question that we asked, you know, beyond, is this relevant to you? Is this relevant to how you perceive, you know, the field moving forward? If you want the field to move forward, we definitely mm -hmm. had some feels of not. And I think that was very valid. We need mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. um, but the last questions we would ask are, you know, what level of involvement do you want in this study? You know, mm -hmm. Do you want to be referenced? Mm -hmm. Do you want to be part of the stimuli? You know, one person just offered without us asking of like, hey, do you want to videotape some of my stereotypy um, or some of my you know body movements mm -hmm. and use that um, and then some folks are interested in being you know authors on the papers themselves so you know i that's the type of you know more like community participatory research yes of, yes you know you're consulting have the person on the damn you know article and sorry for swearing but no please um you know that that's i don't know it just makes sense you know like it, it so many of these articles are posted by folks that don't have that lived experience with the community. Yep. So maybe we need to have more research where someone is actually on there. Someone's getting their authorship and their name out and really looking over the person's shoulder instead of researchers saying, well, I'm going to do this with a bunch of folks, you know, with, with this type of disability and I'm going to publish this thing. And who gets the recognition at the end of the day of that? It's the researcher. It's not the people that or the participants or direct help or totally. consultants associated with totally. that. Totally. That, that just seems wrong. <laughs> I love that. I love that you're doing that. I think that's really, I think that's really forward thinking. And I think that's the way we, we should start to see research more and more. You touched on kind of two things that um, um, resonated really well with me in terms of a couple of guests I've had on recently. Um, uh, I don't know if you heard the episode with, uh, with Dr. Cassio, uh, uh, Ariel Cassio at uh, I forget where she's at now, but um, um, uh, all her work is exactly kind of what you're talking about. It's looking at how how do we and it's, she was particularly looking at, at autistic folk, but how do we involve autistic folk in every single aspect of our research? Mm -hmm. um, going all the way back, and, and, and how do we, and how do we, and how do we make it inclusive at the same time? And so mm -hmm. she talks about um, not only sort of going back to even the theoretical part of sort of coming up with a research question. So she involves the autistic folk in coming up with the research questions themselves. Um, you know, uh, design, you know, the, you know the, 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 the inclusion, the ex exclusion criteria, the recruitment, all those sorts of pieces. Then, then they go a step further, and, and if, it, if if you're recruiting sort of autistic individuals, um, you know that may or may not have you know certain 
um, you know, uh, maybe sensory difficulties or whatnot, or or, mm-hmm. or, um, or, or other other things that maybe the the, the, the typical environments, you know, uh, can 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 literally be painful for them. Uh, how do we design our research area to be? You know, really accommodating for that, and and and, and dealing with those pieces. And she actually has you know focus groups with mostly autistic folk that are, are making all these decisions. So the whole process of research, from beginning to end, to analysis, all the way to publishing, and and the pieces you're doing, are as inclusive as they can possibly be. And she has, uh, I think, five or six kind of guidepost recommendations for anyone doing research with anyone with anyone who's autistic. Um, that, you know, these are sort of basic sort of, you know, respect and dignity and inclusive kind of practices that we should all be engaging in. And so it's just wonderful to hear that other folks are doing that, particularly folks that are, are doing the research in our field, because I think, I think, I think what you're doing is, um, well, it's, I think it's really forward thinking and, you know, and, and, and maybe a bit ahead of times, I think it should be, you know, right on the money and what everyone else, everyone is, everyone should be doing right now. Hey, right. Yeah, and I, I appreciate that too. And, you know, I, I think the other piece that always kind of got me with this type of research is one, other fields have been doing this for decades. And mm-hmm. um, especially fields in usability. I, I, I have a really close friend, um, Katie, that works in uh, like human computer, human computer interaction. Hmm. Um, and they work for a company in Chicago, around the Chicago area here, because right. um, that's where I'm from. Mm-hmm. And her whole job is to fly around for folks that are doing different types of research studies and asking these same questions. Like, mm. who are you pulling for participants for things like a drug patch or a mm. new, um, uh, like, app for you know individuals that uh, want to focus more on things? And that's our whole job. And there's research on that. And and it's like you know you're looking at this and you're like, man, you know what? Like behavior analysis, we're really pushing forward. This is great. And it's like, sweet, maybe we've stepped into like the early 2000s with, mm-hmm. with some of this. We're still so far behind on on what other fields have been doing. And maybe we need to start saying like, okay, you know, if behavior analysis is here to save the world, uh, other people have been doing better things and more refined things. Uh, maybe we need to be reaching across the aisle more and saying like, hey, how can we incorporate? How can we collaborate with other folks to do better research practices because mm-hmm. there are models for that. But, mm-hmm. you know, too many people poo poo that cause we're either in a silo on a pedestal or yep. we just don't care what other people think. <laughs> well, I mean, I think the fact, I think this also kind of goes back to some of the stuff we were talking about around systems. Like mm-hmm. again, not saying Cassio's work is, is the end all be all, but let's just say the, the five guideposts that she, she wrote are, you know, make a lot of sense and, and should mm-hmm. be applied across all research. Then what we should be seeing is that what we should, we should be seeing happen is we should be seeing those publishers saying, okay, did you follow the five guideposts? Mm, you didn't. Okay. Yeah. We're not publishing, you know, and, and, and that yeah. becomes sort of the, you know, the systemic sort of support for, you know, those sorts of pieces. But right now, you Agreed. know, anyone and their dog can, 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 you know, can publish what they're currently publishing because those those particular journals out there, those flagship journals out there, will accept that work based on this criteria and not this sort of upper level piece that really looks to to to, to kind of you know respect the people and and that's and that's and that's a lot of what you know I think you know kind of circling back to kind of the pieces around reform that's a lot of what you know autistic folk are looking for they just want to be 
you know, they just want to be included in every aspect. And that seems mm-hmm. to be the complaint over and over. And what, whether it be, you know, you know, a big, a big, you know, you know, sort of parent advocacy organization that they struggle with or, mm-hmm. or an agency or research or whatnot mm-hmm. is sort of this either lack of inclusion of, you know, of autistic folk in all aspects um, or they include autistic folks, but they're either, you know, in certain aspects or they're folks mm-hmm. that, you know, that, you know, that they've sort of, that, that are already employed by them, you know, mm-hmm. that, um, you know, um, that, that are, that tend to sort of agree with their philosophy and don't, and don't sort of think of sort of that, that wider picture. And so, yeah, I think, uh, I'm, I'm glad you're young because I, th- I think, <laughs> I, I, I think that, you know, I, I, I would be sad to hear that you're retiring in five years and this work couldn't keep going. And so I'm hoping that the, you and, and your colleagues and your students and, and some of the other folks you mentioned already I, that uh, will will kind of continue that process, and we'll actually see, you know, uh, a real change in kind of how we do research and and what kind of questions we're asking, and um, and because this is this is this is what the field is looking for, and um, and uh, it, it's great it's great to know that there's some folks in the forefront. The third secret word is GIF. G-I-F, GIF. Yeah, and, and I think a lot of those changes now, you know, like even within research, I mean, we've had stuff rejected because it didn't meet better ethical standards with that. So it, I, I'm seeing hmm. the change on this cool. end too, which is fantastic. You know, and, I mean, the part that stinks is like, great, this would have been great about 15 years ago. Yes. Um, but, um, it's good that it's happening now. It's good that we're bringing this to the forefront. But I mean, people have been saying this for decades. So this is not like a new thing. So, yes. you know, I mean, I, I encourage everybody out there that's like, you know, oh, this is the first time I'm hearing of it. And it's like, cool. Like, welcome to the party. Like, you yes. <laughs> people have been here for a bit. Um, but, you know, make those changes and challenge those systems because you can. And I, I think there's more of a push and, you know, a reckoning of accountability, you know, especially yeah. all, with all the things happening in the last couple of years. In the yeah, absolutely. World. Yeah. You know, people are more open to that. So push. Yeah, totally. Uh, we, uh, we touched on this a little bit, but just to kind of wrap up, maybe uh, if you can just share with us kind of uh, what some of your cool upcoming projects are, what are you, what are you up to? Yeah, so um, I'm actually working with a group um, right now, uh, Jasmine, Melanie, and Natalia, um, in their doctoral programs, uh, and Natalia is a Dr. Natalia virus, uh, <laughs> and uh, so we're, you know, I, I do want to be respectful of that as well, and we are putting out a paper that I'm really, really excited about, so ho- hopefully it's you know out and published by the time this is in here, at least people are like, hey, this seems like a cool thing. Um looking at disability models and how do we apply that to um, uh, behavior analytic work, you know, Mm. and things like, you know, social model disability, disability Mm. critical race theory. And um, it's, it's a paper that's been in the works for like three years because we wanted to do it right and include authors that had lived experience around disability and the knowledge and the care associated with this and having a wide, you know, I don't know, just a diversity of authors and, and a a lot of considerations behind that. Um, so we really kind of put that to the test and, and wrote this paper that I don't know, I, I I think it's good, but I'm biased on that. (laughs) Um, So we're, I mean, we're sending that in like today. Um, you know, it's finally, finally there, we did it. Um, and you know, it's been great because, you know, we were, 
ready about a year ago. And then behavior analysis and practice and BSI just like pushed out like three different like special issues and go like, oh my gosh, there's gold here. Yes. And readjusted, you know, I mean, science is fluid. It, it can't be stuck in one way and we can't say, well, this is right. This is what it is. You know, like when you find something interesting, drop everything and, and just, you know, look at it, analyze it. And uh, so we have that. Um, there's some more research that we're doing around, you know, the kind of the consulting work I was mentioning before. Mm. Um, I have a really good team of folks and we're going to be doing a lot of stuff starting up in the fall here, um, kind of as the semester wraps up. Some folks yeah. are going through like comps and dissertation and stuff sure. right now. Um, but, you know, a lot of community work. Uh, we just wrapped up a grant with uh, an acceptance and commitment training and behavioral skills training um, for parents and caregivers that don't have access to a lot of the behavioral services and what does that look like and how did mm. we adjust our training associated with that? So we just finished that up and we're going to continue more of that um, really kind of cool. this pro bono work. Yeah. Um, some more, you know, of the research, like expanding my dissertation here and this type of study. So really trying to say like, okay, what is, what are some of these basic frames? And then how do we use that information to create more direct community and, you know, human to human interface interactions? Um, you know, different maintenance goals. So, so we got a lot of cool stuff in the works over the next year here. So I'm, I'm really excited to push that forward. I'm really excited to have the team that I do at TCS. I mean, everybody or at the Chicago professional school of psychology, mm. um, you know, the department's been supportive. The students have been super supportive and just excited and hungry for change and pushing that change themselves. So I, I am just, you know, if y'all are listening to this and you probably will, cause I'm going to be sending this to you, um, <laughs> you know, just thank you. Thank you so much for, uh, putting up with me uh, and my my ideas for getting that forward. So, yes, I mean that this uh, this next year is going to be a busy year for us. That's amazing. And well, I think you're also you've also created just a you know a whole slew of uh, of, of new podcast guests for me for the next couple of years. So I appreciate that as well. Uh, <laughs> and, I'm, and and I'll definitely be having you back as well because I know there's going to be some really great stuff that we'll be able to talk about. So just just thanks again for coming on. Um, you know, I, I know uh, for the for those, I, I know we 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 we've had a, a couple rounds at this and um, and some really good conversations sort of before and during. And uh, you know, I'm I'm looking forward to staying connected, and uh, really looking forward to getting this one out. So thanks again for being on the show. Yeah, of course. Thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it.